Welcome to episode 7 of the Racquetball Show podcast. On this episode, we have an instructional segment where I talk about a different way of thinking about the racquetball swing on both the backhand and forehand sides. That might be a little bit different from what you're used to hearing. We have an awesome interview with number two player in the world, Rocky Carson. And finally, a mailbag segment with two questions. So I hope you enjoy episode seven of the Racquetball Show podcast. Ten, serving ten, must win by two points. It is absolute pandemonium here. I will be the greatest player to ever play the game. Anybody who won't die for it shouldn't, shouldn't be, on the court. be playing racquetball. Get that ball. Get the ball. In this instructional segment of episode 7, rather than breaking down an entire big big topic, I wanted to get into just one thought I've been having lately on how people often teach racquetball swings. So I often hear advice like, squash the bug with your back foot, or snap your wrist, or lead with your elbow. And while I think each of these things individually are, are true to an extent, and you want to do them on a particular swing, I don't think that they're... A, the best way of teaching the racquetball swing. I think that the reason that it's not the best way to teach the swing is because these aren't really the whys of why you're making, why you're swinging the way you should be swinging. They're kind of the what's. They're particular things that happen in a given swing, but they're not why you're swinging the way you're swinging. And I think it's helpful to understand why you're doing each of these elements rather than just explaining a bunch of separate elements, you know, lead with your elbow, snap your wrist, uh, squash the bug, finish with your chest facing the front wall. These are all kind of elements of a good swing, but if I just teach you those, they're kind of it's kind of this chunky bit by bit process where okay, I nailed those four things, but you're not necessarily doing it in a fluid, smooth process the way the swing should be. So when I say you should be understanding the why, why are those things happening when you swing? When a good player swings, each of those things happen. But why is that? And I think the concept that is helpful to understand this is you should think of the swing as like a kinetic chain of movement or like a flow of movement. In other words, movement flows from your biggest muscles in your legs through your core into your shoulder, into your elbow, into your forearm, into your wrist, finally into the racket and into the ball. Uh, and that that's the way you're going to generate force. Um, people like to emphasize things like the wrist snap. And while that is certainly an element of the swing, it's, it's really not where you're getting your power. It's more of a result of doing the other things right to start the swing. So that's why I think it's important to teach a swing from the ground up, teach it as a... It's, it's a fluid kinetic chain where each movement progressively flows from the previous movement rather than being these separate, unconnected elements uh, that make up the whole. And this is a concept I stumbled upon from, uh, from playing baseball. I played baseball all the way through college, and I learned this, this concept through a bunch of coaches in baseball who I think uh, there's a lot more shared and a lot more understood about the baseball swing. So taking those practices and transitioning them over to racquetball has been really helpful for me. And what I learned in baseball 
similar things, you know, you were taught squash the bow with your back foot. You're taught, uh, bring the wrist through with a palm up, palm down movement. And there are all these disparate, separate elements of the movement, but learning, learning how to properly transfer your weight and use your weight efficiently is the most important thing. And I think in baseball, there were several training methods they had to kind of teach your body how to think of it, um, as this smooth movement. A couple of these ways we're using a much heavier bat than you're used to using because this forces you to use your entire body. And I think this is one of the reasons you see people who grow up playing racquetball having really good swings and being able to use their body effectively is that when you're four, five, six years old and you're learning how to swing a racquetball racket, that racket is so heavy that you have to use your whole body efficiently in order to get it around, in order to swing it. So I think a reason that people who learn the game in their late teens or as adults don't develop efficient swings is that they are able to swing with just their arm, so they do it. They think that's where you get your power from is just muscling the ball, and so that that's why they develop bad habits. Another way that the baseball swing is taught is via doing like really overemphasized weight transfers. So starting with absolutely all of your weight on your back foot and ending with absolutely all of your weight on your front foot, which obviously is exaggerated and obviously you have to have a balanced swing in practice in in a in an actual game. But overemphasizing these things, and you can do this with a racquetball swing, um, you know, overemphasize that weight transfer. Start all on your back foot, end all on your front foot. There aren't really heavier rackets out there unless maybe you were to use a tennis racket or something, and that might be dangerous. But try doing something like throwing a medicine ball against a wall. That really forces you to use your entire body. You're using your legs into your core, into your arm. And I think you'll be surprised how natural that feels when you force your body to use your, use all of your weight efficiently. It's it's much more natural than it might feel because you've in racquetball. If you're not used to moving efficiently, it just doesn't feel natural because you develop bad habits. But when you force your body by using something heavier to do this kinetic chain of movement, this flow, I think you'd be surprised at how comfortable and how natural it feels. And I think that that will transition once you get back on the court into your racquetball game. Plus, it's just a, it's a helpful way, I think, of thinking about the swing, even, even if it's, there aren't specific drills to incorporate. I think if you've been thinking about the game as these specific steps, you know, snap the wrist, lead with the elbow, etc., etc., I think that that's a less effective mental model than learning to swing as this natural flow, this kinetic chain of movement where you transfer your weight from your back foot to your front foot, uh, from your legs to all the way to your wrist through every element of your body. Thinking of it that way, I think, is going to be an effective way to think about your swing while still making sure, break it down on video, still making sure that you hit other important uh, set points, making sure that your wrist is snapping, which I think it inevitably will as a result of this efficient movement and making sure that your your swing is flat and making sure that you're balanced. Check those things out, but I think thinking of the swing as this kinetic chain, this flow of movement, will be really helpful for you. I hope that helps. I hope that makes sense. Uh, hit me up on Facebook or email me, reach out if this doesn't make sense, or if you'd like to hear a little bit more about this.
The Racquetball Show is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, vegetarians, and racquetball players get lower rates on their life insurance. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people. Health IQ can save customers up to 33% because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. Like saving money in your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. To see if you qualify, to learn more, or to get a free quote on life insurance, you can visit healthiq.com slash TRS. Link in the podcast description. This is a great way of supporting the podcast and of potentially getting great savings on your life insurance. Check them out. All right, let's roll. So I'm here with Rocky Carson. Rocky hardly needs an introduction, the number two player in the world. Uh, Rocky, thanks for joining me. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So, Rocky, I'd like to start actually off the court. What is it that your life is like off the racquetball court? That's a good question. It's, uh, I really uh, I feel pretty blessed to be able to have racquetball. In essence, it's been a career. It's not just been a job, but I've been able to do this for 20 years and, and, uh, I've loved it. Um, and I think that's what most people know me for. Uh, obviously I live in South, Southern California. So that brings some, uh, uh, lifestyle opportunities that I really totally try to take advantage of. But, you know, first of all, you know, outside of racquetball, you know, to, de- to describe myself, um, I'm a Christian, I'm a father, I'm a husband, um, I, uh, in essence, a teacher, I, I do, uh, I do teach racquetball a little bit. Um, I love, uh, I'm competitive, so I love sports in general. Uh, you know, if I'm not working out at the gym or if I'm not, uh, uh playing racquetball or hanging out at the house, I'm usually at the beach in the water surfing yeah. and yeah. stuff. So, to me, uh, that's that's a, a lot like what my racquetball or what my uh, life outside of racquetball is like. Nice. How much surfing do you actually get in? Uh, about seven hours this week. Um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> we had a good, good swell good. this week, so <laughs> it just depends on the swell, obviously. Um, but uh, it's I, you know what it is. It's part of my training. It's not just part of. Uh, um, you know, my, uh, I don't want to say my lifestyle or what I enjoy, but it allows me to get in, you know, a little bit of cardio and get in a good workout without having to beat my body up the same way I always do on the racquetball court, which I think has been a big part of me being able to stay injury free, um, as well as, um, competitive at a high level, um, and, and stuff. Yeah, totally. What, what is your workout routine? Like, is it, is it pretty hardcore? Do you take it easy? Does it vary? when you're preparing for tournament right not that's yeah definitely and you know as well um you know when you're when you're going to a tournament you want to go into it as fresh as possible um so you're not going to go out there and push super hard the week of going into a tournament at 80 to 90 percent because it it, you know your hope is to be in the finals uh playing on a sunday or saturday night and you don't want to be at 70 percent at that time um so uh uh, weeks of tournaments, I definitely, uh, uh, scale it down. Uh, I'll, I'll push a little bit here and there. Um, I can surf 
I can, uh, I'll do some lightweights. I'll definitely do some hitting, but I may not actually play the week of, um, uh, I might get on the court and play a game or two, uh, real, yeah. uh, real light. Um, but I'm not going to push too hard. Uh, the weekend before, uh, I might, I might push hard if I've had a few weeks off, I'll, uh, I might push real hard and try to really tear down so that it gives me about four or five days to, or, you know, to build back up and, and be ready for the tournament. Yeah. And I enjoy that because it kind of, it, it tells me where I'm at. It tells me, all right, this is, you know, how your recovery is. This is, um, how hard you're able to go for and sustain it at that level. And that's what one of the biggest things we need to know as, as athletes is, uh, what can we do? And then what can't we do? And where do we need, where do we need to improve on? Yeah. I was, I listened to an interview of yours from the past and you talked about how you thought you worked hard and then you met, uh, Brian Hawks and he worked out with you and you realized you didn't work out that hard and it kind of changed how you did things. What describe that and how, yeah, without a doubt. Um, well, Brian was a good friend of mine, uh, also uh, from Southern California. Some and most of the racquetball community knows him as uh, the best outdoor player to ever live. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think he has 20 titles in, uh, in outdoor singles. And uh, um, it, pretty much anybody that was a pro back in those days, he retired them pretty quickly from uh, wanting to come back out and trying <laughs> to compete against them. Uh, and I got to compete against him as well. And I loved it, uh, cause he was a competitor. He was, he freaking was fierce. Uh, and I loved that. Um, and one of my best victories of my life was probably against him outside. Nice. And so, um, we, 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 we became great friends, um, and, uh, and great, uh, competitors, but one of the things he kind of took me under his wing at times and we trained together. He'd do that with a lot of people nice. and everybody thought he was nuts because he'd do some crazy stuff. And, uh, he, he, uh, at one point in his life was considered the world's fittest athlete. Yeah, I saw that. So you kind of get a, get, get where I'm going with that. Totally. And not only was he a great athlete, but he was considered the world's fittest athlete. They did stories on time magazine on him and stuff. And it was really, uh, it was a joy to be able to go, go and hang out with him because we always had fun. Um, but he would go out and train and the differences were I would go out and train and I'd go out there and enjoy it. He'd go out there and train and see his joy factor came in how far can I push myself before I hit my limit. And it was, it was pretty interesting. And I, and I saw that, and, I, and I'm thinking, man, if he can do that, why can't I do that? Sure. Uh, I can be that guy too. And it, it did change uh, the way I, I went about my training when I was uh, in my early 20s. I'd just nice. gotten on tour and, yeah. and, and stuff. And uh, some of our funniest moments that we trained together were on a squash court because that, okay. his shoulder wasn't – uh, healthy anymore. And, uh, it gave us something to compete on. And he beat up on me when I was starting to learn the game of squash when I was younger and, uh, we would laugh our head off. I I would not, I wouldn't stop running, but I also wasn't in the same condition as he was. And I didn't know the shot. So I was doing all the running and I wasn't in in his condition and he would fin. I'd finish rallies and I'd lay on the ground. And I think (laughs) I was drooling practically. I was so tired and he'd just sit back and laugh. You know, he got, he, he got so much joy out of my pain and stuff. And, and don't think that didn't motivate me because when, uh, when I was out there, I'm having fun doing it, but it was painful. It, it was as hard a cardio as I think I've ever been in other than maybe doing suicides when I was playing basketball in high yeah. school. And, uh, he would, um, 
he would he would uh, kind of chuckle and stuff, and I'd be, you know what? I'm coming for you, baby. I'm coming, <laughs> and that would motivate me and stuff. But I I got to see it at the highest peak, and that was big for me. Yeah. What what sort of stuff did you guys do like specifically when you worked out with him? <laughs> uh, painful things. <laughs> we he one of the things he'd go to a hotel and out there by John Wayne Airport. Uh, I think it was the West End, and we'd go walk in. We'd go to the back and find the back stairs, and we'd just jog up the back stairs. All right, that was the first one. Take the elevator down, walk back to the back. All right, now we're going to do one-legged up this. And then next thing, one-legged every two steps. And then it'd be one-legged every three steps. And then you switch legs. And I'm thinking, all right, we're done. Now we're going to do two-legged. Since our legs are tired, we'll do two-legged one step, then two-legged two steps. And then we're going to try to get to four-legged or four steps uh, um, uh, for, uh, for the two legs. And then we'll cool off with just doing, uh, you know, running up as fast as possible. Yeah, <laughs> and it would be intense. like a 45-minute stairs workout, and I'm thinking, uh, who really enjoys this? <laughs> but he enjoyed pushing himself and I got to learn a lot from that. Yeah. Um, other ones would be, we'd go out to the Hills at, outside of Laguna beach and, and run the Hills. And he would laugh at me cause I'd want to puke and sure. he'd just keep on going. And I'm thinking, how do you keep on going? I'm ready to stop. And, uh, and it'd be stuff like that. That would be off court stuff and everything. And, and, uh, that taught me a lot. There's a lot of life, a lot of lessons with that. You know, we think we push hard, and uh, then you realize, yeah. man, maybe I don't push as hard as I could. Yeah, it's all relative, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'm asking this question because I view you as one of the fittest guys on tour, prob- if not the fittest guy on tour. Um, has your tra- training regimen sort of evolved as you've gotten older? Yeah, without a doubt. I think uh, the more you do it, the more you get to know yourself, your body, um, the co- recovery aspect. Um, Obviously, the little injuries that have, uh, you know, occurred throughout time and stuff like that forces you to make a, adaptions and changes to that. And, uh, and you know, obviously, I'm not 20 in my 20s anymore. Sure. I'm closing in on 40, as crazy as it sounds to say, at least for me. And so I got to be a little cautious on how I train on that. Yeah. Um, so I'm a little bit I try to be a little bit more diligent. Sometimes I take too much time off and I'm learning that. Sometimes I, I need to push harder and sometimes I need to push less. And so, you know, it's always a, it's a fine line because you want to go into tournaments ready to go, you ready to roll, but be able to be able, you want to be able to sustain that level also. Yeah. And I saw that. So you played other sports growing up. You played basketball and baseball. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure in basketball, my senior year, I may have led the league in batting. I, nice. I think it was like a 536 batting average, but yeah, that's awesome. um, it wasn't the biggest conference, but it was, a, a, you know, we had some good competition. I do remember my last at bat was a home run. So I was able oh, to, let's go. that was awesome. <laughs> um, you know, why not swing up for the fences on everything? Right. And then, uh, in basketball, I think I was all CIF in basketball, which is like all state in California, nice. kind of like in that section. Um, I did have a major, uh, ankle injury my senior year cause that kind of took, okay. uh, took a little bit of steam out of it, um, throughout that year, but I loved basketball. I loved, uh, yeah. I loved, uh, baseball. Um, but after that, uh, it was just racquetball. And there was one point when racquetball was becoming unenjoyable in my career for a couple mm-hmm. of years. And, uh, I started getting into surfing and that surfing 
brought back the joy of racquetball too nice. because now i had another outlet yeah you know and that was that was big for me and stuff yeah so did did you ever have a chance to go professional or to the next level or anything in those sports uh, I think I could have played uh, college uh, in those sports. Um, nice. I think in baseball, it would, it would have suited my skills well. I don't know how yeah. far I could have yeah, gotten, I but I, I, I'm a pretty confident person when it comes to sports. Sure. I feel like I could have done pretty well, nice. um, as well as tennis. But I never put the time into any of those. Basketball, mm -hmm. I did, and I could have played college ball. That wouldn't have gone any farther than that. Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe somewhere in China. <laughs> <laughs> that could be fun. Uh, <laughs> Did did those did playing those sports influence your racquetball game or help your racquetball game? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, the hand-eye coordination, I think, uh, probably the more so the racquetball helped my baseball. Yeah. Um, but when it came to uh, um, basketball, the footwork in basketball and the conditioning was obviously a massive asset when it came nice. to uh, the the racquetball and stuff. Uh, when I teach rack racquetball i try to teach footwork as if you're playing basketball and defense and hmm. uh shuffling and staying opening staying open to the ball and pivoting and doing things like that stay wide stay low um stuff like that and so that obviously was big yeah as far as your game on the court what do you think has allowed you like what traits have allowed you to be as successful as you've been on the court that's a good question. You know, you, you, you see so many different um, players come through the tour and over the years and at the top level. And, and uh, I think one of the things that allows me to is I, can, I play a physical game. Yeah. Um, I like playing a physical game, but um, I feel comfortable playing a slow game. I feel mm -hmm. comfortable playing a junk, sloppy game. <laughs> yeah. So I can, when things aren't necessarily always going the right way or going the way, um, you know, I want them to, uh, I can, I can change things up and, and adapt to things. I think more than most players can, um, you know, go from a drive serve to, a you know, a, a ceiling ball game to a, to a Z serve to a, you know, slicing the ball yeah. and seeing if I can pull you out of the game that way. Um, and then just knowing I, I, I'm a student of the game too. I yep. enjoy knowing what's going on in the game and stuff. Yeah. What is what's one change that you made to your own game? It can be mechanics or mindset or whatever. What's a change you made to your game that had a huge impact on your game? Well, I'll tell you. Before we had two serves, all I hit was um, Z's for ten years. Um, yeah. it literally, I mean, I finished number one. I was always uh, executing the Z serve. I, I don't. I think there was times when I never even hit anything other than that. At times in my uh, in my career, when it came to uh, hitting. Uh, hitting serves, going through tournaments, and winning them at times. But learning how to hit a drive serve was, and consistently executing it um, was a big thing for a big stage in my career where I was able to trans transition my game from being a little bit more of a rallier, which I still am, to more of a, a shooter and stuff like that. Um, now, I, I, you're going to hear from everybody that um, – you know that watches me. Hey, he likes to play a lot, lot longer rallies and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I feel comfortable playing short rallies too. Sure. I just feel like I'm better conditioned than most players are. Yeah. I and agree. I also feel more phys like I'm more physical than most players. So yeah. Why not go to what you know, and why, and, yeah. and to where your assets are, um, and stuff like that. So I'll do that. But um, I do feel comfortable shooting the ball too. So it's kind of like yeah, you know, we'll we'll figure it out. You yeah, know, as the match goes on. Yeah, it's the type of thing too where the physicality never has days off. You know, like you you can be a great shooter and just have an off day. The physicality thing, you know, your fitness. 
as long as your fitness days. is there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. As long Which, as your fitness is there, it's, a, you know, dealing with the, this year has been a, an interesting year because I tore my meniscus and I had to have surgery and uh, now it's getting back into shape and getting back to where I feel like I should be uh, to compete at the highest level. I'm, I'm getting there, but I'm not quite there yet. And uh, um, there's been a couple times throughout the season where I've noticed uh, I'm not in the shape I want to be in when it, when it really does matter at times and yeah. stuff. But Speaking of the, the torn meniscus, I mean, that happened, what, in, in Portland? Well, yeah, I, I, I've, or, I've been dealing with it all year. Yeah, um, right. I've, I probably did it a few years ago, um, two or three years ago, I think wow. I remember, and okay. then uh, aggravated it this summer, and uh, the swelling in my knee just wouldn't go down. Yeah. And uh, the swelling was probably the biggest uh, issue because it was so um, – it was such a, um, uh, a problematic thing in the sense that what what was happening was I had so much swelling that it made it hard for me to move it, and then it also felt loose. So it felt like it was wiggling around. My knee was, oh, you know, wasn't uh, stable, and uh, there was a lot of things that would just uh, it didn't feel comfortable. But then there was the pain aspect as well, and so. You know, training, I, what it came down to the first half of the season was I'd play in a tournament, then I'd stay off the court and get to the next tournament and hit because then two weeks following that last tournament was getting the swelling down so that I could deal Yikes. with it, would deal with the pain because you knew over the next four days it was just going to swell up again. That's intense. Were you consistently playing through pain all that time? Oh, yeah. It was, a, it was probably the toughest six months of my career. Even though I was getting solid results in tournaments, it was not fun to play. Yeah, it was it was painful. That sounds rough. Yeah, and then at this point, so you had surgery right. about a month and a half ago. Uh huh. And is it is it? It feels well great. Now? Yeah, it feels awesome. great compared to what it is. Still getting swelling in there, um, so yeah. I'm very cautious. Um, that's why I haven't played any doubles this whole year. Um, I'm, okay. I'm, uh, doctors want me to be cautious. Uh, my therapists want me to be cautious. Yeah. And they know who I am. They know I don't like uh, taking time off. Uh, yeah. I, I enjoy activity. I enjoy doing things. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to learn and <laughs> trying to be patient with myself. Uh, but uh, um, as far as the pain level, the pain is not there. It doesn't hamper my play. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so I'm stoked about that. Really happy with totally. it. Totally. Yeah. As far as tips that you would have for a beginner or inter intermediate player, when you see those type of people playing, what's generally the first thing you would tell them for improving their game? Yeah, that's a good question. There's there's a lot of little fun tips I give when I'm teaching. Um, I do clinics, and um, and sometimes it's uh, information overload when you do a clinic because you're you're trying to relay and and get people to help people absorb a lot of information in a yeah. short period of time and, and it's tough to do. And then not only do you want to absorb it, then you want to actually apply it and applying yeah. it is a whole nother ball game. Then it's like, shoot, if I'm thinking about it, it's not that easy to actually do when it's rackable, you know, playing rackable is not a thinking game. It's a reaction. You, yeah. you want to just be able to go in there and do it. And so, um, you know, good tips that I that I, I always like to do is, you know, have a game plan. What is your game plan? Hmm. You know, and if you know what your game plan is, um, you're you're going to know how to start rallies and how to finish rallies. Um, you know, I like I like kind of asking the questions. You know, what yeah. are the two most important shots in the game? Okay. You know, and and usually the answer is the down the line and the pinch or the kill shot, and okay. and it's the serve and the service return. 
Okay. And I always try to compare it to each round you come out in a fight, you want to be the first one to land a punch. (laughs) If you land the punch first, good chance you're going to have a good round. Yeah. Well, that's what we want to do in the, in, uh, in the racquetball game, too. As racquetball players, we want to be the first one to land the punch. We want to put the other guy on the defense if possible. And uh, um, when you're playing at the pro level, and you know as well, it's not always easy to do because you can throw a good punch and get a freaking good punch thrown right back at yep. you. Yep. And it's like, man, I thought I did something good, and, <laughs> and it really wasn't all that effective yeah. <laughs> and, and stuff like that. So there's a couple little tips. Um, Let's see. Uh, one of the th- one of my favorite things to ask I me mean, when I start clinics is why do we hit the ball into the back corners? Okay. And uh, the, usually it's the toughest place to to hit the ball from. And uh, for myself, um, it definitely is true. But it's how we control the center court. Yeah. And sometimes those back corners are more important than the front corners. And uh, if you don't hit the ball to the back corners, eventually that ball is going to always float to the middle of the court. And at that point, you can't keep the, you can't yourself be in the middle of the court if your opponent's hitting from the middle of the court. So in essence, you become sometimes your worst enemy unless you're rolling the ball out a lot. And then that puts the pressure on you to execute a lot of kill shots. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a couple, few little tips that you can take home and and hopefully uses nuggets uh, for those at home. There you go. And stuff. (laughs) But, uh, um, yeah, those are, those are fun little things that I like to, that I like to work with with players, you know, getting on a court with them. Yeah. Awesome. And so I don't actually know the specifics of this, but it seems to me you're one of the, probably a few players who are able to make a living entirely through racquetball. Mm-hmm. What is, so what does that look like from an income standpoint? Is it clinics, uh, you know, club, well, you know, what playing? where, where it comes down to it is unfortunately in the racquetball world, um, not a lot of guys are able to make a solid living doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a battle. Um, and I wish the best for every one of the guys. Um, and, uh, the, you know, we hope that we're able to get some outside industries, um, going into it and, and, uh, and jumping into the sport and supporting yeah. us and getting behind us and and stuff and a big part of it is we um our sport hasn't been able to show the roi and at least yeah. not in the way that these these companies need to see it so we, we got to be a little bit more creative we got to be a little bit more diligent in the way we go about um representing our, ourselves as as mm. um not just athletes but as a sport um you know you know you don't want to go into an uh an a match with a c c game yeah. And uh, um, I think that's been some of our problems in the past. And I think uh, we're trying to make those adjustments and those changes and, and, and go in there and represent ourselves a little bit better. And that'll help everybody. But for myself, um, it's, it's a lot like golf. The top players in golf make most of their money from endorsements. Mm-hmm. And same thing with us. You know, it's nice to be able to go to a tournament, you know, two to four times a, a month if we want to and have the opportunity to make two to three grand a month or a weekend. And, uh, so, you know, depending on how much you want to travel and work and stuff, um, being that I do have two kids and and stuff, I don't want to travel every weekend and playing every weekend. Probably not the smartest thing being that I'm 38 at the moment. Um, but I do love playing and I love going to tournaments, um, and stuff. So, uh, that there's a good portion of of our income and that's what a lot of the younger guys are doing is they're just saying, Hey, you know what? I don't have the sponsorships, but I can, I do have an opportunity to go out there and make, you know, 1500, a thousand dollars every weekend. 
And the hope is maybe they're making four to five grand a month, you know, and if they can do that, they're starting somewhere, sure. you know, and they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're able to put something together and, and start um, building on something. And with that, they'll, they'll create value for themselves for those, for those sponsorships. And then for myself, about, about 15 years ago, I started, um, 12 years ago, I started a junior program at a YMCA. Okay. And I, I got offered to be the club pro at another club that was just opening up outside of Laguna Beach. And um, when that came about, I, I took the opportunity. And at that point, I realized... Um, the potential of what I can do at that club probably about three to four years later. And uh, I still haven't reached that potential being that I'm traveling so much and I got mm-hmm. so many other things going on with uh, um, when it comes to uh, um, my professional career on the court. But I love teaching. I teach out of there uh, and uh, um, and I have a great program there. I'm real proud to to, to be a part of the program, the guys awesome. there, we have a good time. So yeah. that's been a, a, a great source of income for when I'm home nice. and stuff. And, and it gives me responsibility because what happens is, and a lot of athletes will know you get home and it's like, what do I want to do for the, for the day? I got the whole day. I'll, all right. I'll get sure. two hours of training in and you know, well, where do I want to go to lunch? And you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So it gives me responsibility and, 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 and stuff and, and, uh, to fill my day, but it, I love doing it. Nice. I really do love doing it. And then um, I actually, in the last uh, two years, um, my wife and I, my wife's done real estate for 15 years. I believe it is now. And two years ago, I got my license for real estate. And so oh, nice. that's been a focus of ours so that when I am done playing the tour, um, I can easily transition into something else if if um, uh, if that's the case. And it will be the case, um, even if I'm still part of Rackable um, and doing things as a on the pro tour or whatever and traveling. Uh, but I do want to do things outside of racquetball yeah. as well. I love, yeah. I love, uh, challenging myself. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, what do you see the end of your professional career going? Like, do you intend to kind of stop when you're right. at the level you're at, or do you hope to play until you're getting beat? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one to answer, you know, and it, like Alvaro and I both talk about that and I don't yeah. think any, any pro really, gets excited about talking about that in in any sport because we, uh, um, we get out there and we, we compete for, you know, and when you've been doing it for so long, that's what we love. And that's what we dreamed about as kids. And so to think about not doing that, at least on somewhat of a regular level, um, that's tough to imagine. You know what I mean? So, um, for myself, I hope I get to play at the highest level for a lot longer. You know, maybe I just don't play as much. Um, I don't know. Maybe I do play as much as I can, yeah. you know, for, for another two, three, maybe five years. Who knows? I mean, yeah. I really, I don't know. But um, I don't see myself not being a part of uh, everything great we got going on here. Yeah, nice. What's one thing that people who actually know racquetball still wouldn't know about Rocky Carson? Oh, man. Don't know about me. Um, yeah. uh, you know what? I, I enjoy being at home in Southern California, being with my family. I yeah. think probably most people do know that, but I cherish it so much, being able to have family time and and uh, um, being able to go to go to church on Sundays and yeah. and, uh, um, and and stuff like that. Um, 
I, I love being around my family, being around my kids, um, having my parents around or just, you know, even, uh, all my family around, but, um, you know, those, those times together with, with kids, I've, I've missed a lot of my kids life with all the travel. Luckily I get to go home between each tournament, but you know, my son's in a baseball game today. My daughter's in a dance competition. I'm missing yeah, that right now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so just those opportunities just to be a fan of theirs is, is pretty, is pretty awesome. And, and, uh, I, I love those moments. Yeah. What, what player or players did you look up to as a kid? Um, well, there, shoot, man, <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of great people to, yeah. to, to look up to. I mean, you, you can go with the room and with the class that he held himself, yeah. uh, you know, with, as, as a, as an individual on the court and off the court, um, really the, the friendship we have is, um, is really, a, a pretty cool friendship. Yeah. Um, you know, the kind of person he is and stuff, you, you, you really think a lot of, I, I really think a lot of him. Um, I, uh, I love uh, you know, Jack Cusack was one where a yeah. lot of respect for how hard he trained and pushed himself. Yeah. And I always looked forward to getting on the court with him because I knew it was going to be a fight and it was going to be a two hour fight. We were, yeah, yeah. If it was a boxing match, we would have been the <laughs> ugliest guys ever walking out of that thing. Yeah. But we would have, it was like what we live for. And that's what, nice. that's what it was supposed to be like. Um, Alvaro, uh, just for the, the quality person he is off the court and on the court and the competitor that he is. Um, I loved watching Cliff, Cliff and watching him compete, but watching his fundamentals. Um, I studied his game. I studied Jack's game a lot. Um, I really enjoyed that. You know, Sudzy was on tour when I got on there. I, I, uh, um, I, I learned a, a little bit of it from, from the game of the ground. You know, it was kind of, I called the ground and pound yeah. game where it's just physical racquetball, yeah. um, and stuff like that, watching him. Um, but you know, when it comes down to it, uh, you know, my dad was my biggest idol in racquetball. Nice. Um, he was a, he was a solid open player and could compete nice. at the low pro level in doubles. But, um, you know, he was my coach growing up. Um, he was, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, my best friend, even though I did have great friends growing up, we would go to the club all the time. We would go and hang out. We would compete against each other. I'd get all pissed off and then he'd work on me with my attitude which still needs work <laughs> and uh and then he would uh you know i'd tell him i don't want to talk about it so then we'd go to breakfast the next morning and and we'd talk about it the next morning yeah. <laughs> you know how much of it actually sank in and we'd go over some some principles in life that that really uh, have made a difference in in me and stuff and so he was definitely um you know that was i wish i could still play doubles with him you know, that's how we yeah. played doubles together in tournaments and stuff. And it was just so much fun getting on the court. And we'd every, you know, up, up until lately, we'd even do that, go home and I'd get on the court with them. I never saw a shot. The guys would always hit it to my dad, you <laughs> sure. know, <Yeah. laughs> but and, you know, one of the, one of the, Fran Davis is, um, pretty special for our sport and a, a special coach, the love she puts into everything. Uh, she knows racquetball. She knows how to, uh, how to coach racquetball, but she knows how to, get through to people and not only that she knows how to listen and nice. being a coach um watching her coach and stuff she's incredible at that that aspect of it and it's really fun working with her yeah 
and one thing you talked about kind of going through attitude stuff with your dad. Uh, one thing I think a lot of people notice is you, you tend to get into it with the refs at times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they, they mess up sometimes. I gotta <laughs> let them know. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that kind of a, it seems to almost drive you. It seems to be a way like you're out of a match a little bit. It, it, sometimes I'll, dr- it'll let it drive drives, me and yeah. try to get some mo- motivation out of it. Sometimes I'm an idiot. Yeah. I mean, in all honesty, yeah, well, we all um, <laughs> I get frustrated and I, I, you know, I don't, I I can't expect them to be perfect. Um, but you know, it's one of those things where as professionals, we, we, I try to perform as a professional. Yeah. So I expect professional refereeing. Yeah. And so I, I hold them to a high standard and, uh, I think they want to be held to a high standard. I think they should be held to a high standard. And when I think there's poor calls, I get it when, Hey, I thought that was a skip, but when you tell me it was a skip and I know it wasn't a skip, yeah. don't tell me it was a skip. Just say, I thought it was a skip. Now we got an issue huh. <laughs> because I know it wasn't a skip. Yeah. You said it was a skip and you think it was a skip, but it wasn't. <laughs> but don't tell me it was because yeah. you just think it was. So things like that bug me. If you, if you stated it in the proper way, hey, man, I think that was good. All right, well, you were wrong, <laughs> but yeah. I can't argue with you because yeah. that you thought it was good. But I can't argue with you if you tell me it was good. <laughs> simple, go. simple fact right there. There you go. Uh, just, I'll tell Scott that. Just say it, I think. It's every simple. Call. <laughs> you know, and, and knowing the rules and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, the screen serve has been an issue over the last year. You know, when you get a bunch of different uh, – USA Rackable doesn't have a real clear uh, ruling on that. And it's really caused a lot of problem. And when you're playing with pros who know how to bend every rule there is – Yeah. Uh, what do you do? All right, hey, it's a screen, but I took the shot. I missed it. That was a screen. It was a screen. I took the shot. I made it. That's not a screen. I took the shot. You sure. know, <laughs> I mean, let's let's just play with the game. I'll, I'll play with the ref as much as possible if you want to let it go like that. Uh-huh. So it, what it does is it, you know, the refs have to know how to take control of a match. Yeah. And, you know, and how to also treat the players, too. And the players with that need to obviously be held to a standard in which they need to, you know, treat the refs and i think sometimes i definitely go overboard on that uh, and I, I apologize scott charlie <laughs> there you go matt um <laughs> yeah, yeah i keep on going with all the refs <laughs> that's funny it's all your fault anyways yeah those guys suck I <laughs> <laughs> you started it uh, uh so another thing i'd like to get into i mean obviously you know kane has been so dominant and right. he you've probably I would guess set a record for second places, even given yeah. that he's been so dominant. Good and bad, yeah. It's a good and bad, I think. Yeah, I'm very thankful to be in those finals, but at the same time, I go to tournaments to win them. Totally. So it's like, uh, it's, it's bittersweet. Yeah. What What do you think has allowed him to be so dominant, and what do you think people can do to surpass him? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not keen. I don't know exactly what his training schedule or yeah. training is like. Um, I don't know all the different aspects of his game. You know, I know what I need to do yeah. um, and and how that works. And, you know, the, the thing that makes him so, you know, far and away better than anybody's played the game in the past. And mm-hmm. and uh, obviously, uh, you know, I've had a lot of opportunities to play him in the uh, in the present and, and, and stuff. Um, you know, I've never played a guy that's so complete and so explosive and uh you know and he's able to make adjustments i i I get Mm. you know i get people coming up hey you need to do this and you need to do that and it's like 
Oh, I can do that, but he makes adjustments to that. And then I can do this, and I, he makes adjustments to that. Mm. He's incredible making those adjustments. Mm. And he can play slow game as good as anybody. Most people don't know that. Yeah. He can also play the power game better than anybody because he's hitting the ball 20 miles an hour harder than anyone. Yeah. That, I mean, when you're doing that, you can hit a two-foot-high pinch and miss it bad and still be effective because it's such a bad shot that is passing you, the, yeah. your opponent. Um, you know, that power is gigantic. And, you know, obviously we all hit the ball pretty hard on the tour, but sure. that's, a, that's a different kind of speed. Yeah. Um, you know, he's more accurate than anybody that's ever played both forehand and backhand. You know, his hands are incredible in the front court. His defense is incredible. So when you look at all the different players that have played through all the generations, um, you could take the best of all of them, you know, and I, he might be better than all of them. And those yeah. aspects that you picked out for each one of those guys. Yeah. You know, that's how like that's how impressive Kane is in that. So it's one of those things where, like, when I go into those things, I I, uh, I look at it and say, all right, let's 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 go in there. Let's put the pressure on this direction or in this way. And uh, and hopefully, you know, he, he makes some mistakes. And when you get your chances, you have to execute. And I've done a good job at that at times. And then all of a sudden, sometimes he just catches fire and hit scores five points in a minute because he's hit three aces and a yeah. and a thing that you you know you overrun a serve because it's coming off the back wall so fast because he hit two perfect serves before that yeah. and it's like what do you do you know yeah. and it's tough it's a it's uh, the game's played at a different speed and at a different level yeah what is so you've you've obviously been through you know years and years of racquetball through all those years and all the tournaments and everything, what's your favorite racquetball story? Oh, man. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. That's like putting pressure on me. <laughs> you know, I was telling you about when I beat Brian Hawks and, uh, in the outdoors. It was the first time I ever played him, and I beat him in, uh, at the Outdoor Nationals. And it was the first time I actually ever played singles at Outdoor Nationals. And I got to the finals. It was I had a, one or two tough tiebreakers to get there. And... Uh, um, when I got there, um, I played him, and all I could think was just give yourself a chance. Yes. Just give your, if you got a chance, you never know. Yeah. And uh, I gave myself a chance in that first game, and I lost. I lost the first game, and I was like, shoot, that was my chance. Huh. And I said, well, I'll keep on battling. And I gave myself a chance in the second game, then I caught fire, and I won the second. And I remember in the third game, I won the match on a diving kill shot, outdoors diving. Yeah, nice. And uh, – <laughs> And I remember winning that thinking, I can't believe I just won that match yeah. and stuff. Um, other ones, uh, memories. Whenever we're playing for our country, it's yeah. gigantic. Nice. I think when I played Jack for the first time and won my first world championships, we were both in the finals. And uh, I won my first world championships. I think I actually fought off eight or ten match points. And uh, to win, to, to be a world champion the, world champion, the world champion, I was world champion in juniors, but the world champion, men's world champion, was – gigantic yeah and awesome. uh to have that under your resume and under your name was 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 really big to me so to be able to win it the, that in a in that kind of fashion of yeah. uh you know fighting off six game points in the second game and or, and or match points and three or four in the tiebreaker and yeah it was like wow you know and that's crazy and then that was a lot of fun because we room together after that and he was about as grumpy as i get after matches when you <laughs> lose so imagine him there's not a lot of conversation in that room <laughs> um uh what other ones playing playing uh the pan ams was gigantic 
nice. um, winning those was oh man spot on man those, those were awesome you know one of the coolest things when you play the pan am games is you're playing all these different sports and you get there and you go to the opening ceremonies and you see all the different athletes and i'm not a shy person i'll go and talk to them all yeah. and i want to get to know know about them and yeah. stuff and and uh um you go back and the the games start and we get our first medal and they put it up on the on the wall in the usa dorms and yeah. you see we got a medal and another medal and i remember that's motivation nice you want motivation you go see all these different different medals on the wall that each guys have gotten. And it's not the actual medal, but they put the like a, a thing like you know this for that, you know this for you know Dylan Reed for for soccer or whatever it might yeah. be or whatever. And to look at that and say, I gotta get my I gotta get mine up there. Yeah. I don't want to be letting anybody down, and I want to make sure mine's up there. That's motivation. Nice. And I remember the last two Pan Ams I played and be able to get those up there. Was, oh, that was a good feeling. Yeah. That was a good feeling and winning those. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously winning the U S open back in, uh, um, a, f- a few years back was gigantic. I got to have my dad with me when I won that. And that That's was awesome. special. Um, yeah. I think I had him with me on one of the Pan Ams as well. Actually, my parents were with me and my sister. So, um, but having my dad with me on that Pan Ams was awesome too. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on Rocky. I really appreciate having you getting to know you better. Uh, yeah learning more about you is there anything you'd like to plug before you yeah you know just uh yeah thanks i just want to say thanks to everybody out there that supported me throughout my career um i know a lot of people pray for me throughout uh weekends and and opportunities as i uh um uh go out there and compete and and uh those things mean a lot to us you know you 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 compete yourself and when people are thinking of you and 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 you know they you know they you they want the best for you that that means a lot for every one of us so we want to thank you i know i want to thank you um to know that you guys really care and that that does mean a lot it's a family out here we have on the rackball community yeah. so it's pretty cool so um yeah thanks so much for having me awesome yeah thanks for coming on all right the mailbag segment is back for episode 7 this first mailbag question comes from Georgette from Portland. So thank you so much for the question, Georgette. She says, my question is about mixed doubles, specifically at the pro level. Can you share with us any insight or knowledge you have about any discussion or rationale behind not having that division at the pro level? Do you know if there has ever been any talk about combining the IRT and LPRT players in an exhibition match or a division of competition in tournaments? I think it'd be fun to see teams such as Kane and Ronda or Rocky and Paola or Daniel and Samantha or Alvaro and Frederic, etc. Also, what are your thoughts or opinions about the idea? So, Georgette, I actually did my research uh, for this episode, and it turns out so there's a tournament in Denver, Colorado in May, early May, the 2nd through the 6th, called the World Doubles Open Championships, and it actually does have... Uh, mixed doubles pro division. So, if that answers your question, there is it's a yes. There there are plans to do this. I think the reason we haven't seen a whole lot of it uh, is kind of largely due to compensation and also the fact that there just aren't a lot of tournaments where pro women and pro men are present at the same time. Uh, I think I think other than maybe this particular one I'm talking about, the World Doubles Open Championships. 
the U.S. Open might be the only other one where both pro women and pro men are present. I might be wrong about that. <laughs> I guess I didn't fully do my research, but uh, partial research. So I think the compensation is another important factor, and it, it it's not easy to get that money in the division. By the way, at this World Doubles Opium Championships, there are th- it's three thousand dollars for first for. Uh, second place is fifteen hundred, and it looks like for third seven fifty. So a fair amount of money in the draw. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some pretty good players, some interesting matchups, uh, pairings in that draw. But the compensation has to be there for professional players in order to make it interesting, and I think that's because you know their bodies are their greatest assets. So if you're going to ask players to play a competitive game, um, put their bodies on the line. There has to be a fair amount that they're playing for, given that there's already not a whole lot of money available. Uh, They want to maximize their chances to make an income through the sport. Also, at the U.S. Open, I think one of the reasons they may not have that division, and maybe they'll consider it in the future, but that's really the biggest tournament of the year. Um, And while it's one of the only ones that both pro women and pro men are available, as a top player, you want to make sure that you are maximizing your energy in the divisions you care about the most. So I would think that for most players, that's going to be singles is the number one thing they care about the most, and then single gender doubles is going to be the second thing. So to ask them to play a third division where they're going to get even more sore, even more tired, um, and risk not doing as well in the divisions they care about even more, I think that's going to be a hard ask unless there's a good amount of compensation there. Those are just my opinions, um, but I think those are some of the challenges behind doing mixed pro doubles, uh, maybe why you haven't seen it as much as uh, you'd like to, because I certainly think it'd be an interesting thing for people to watch. They'd be really interested in seeing that. But hopefully they can get it going down the line, and I think um, compensation and getting both pro women and pro men uh, at the same tournament at the same time those are the keys to getting it done. So hopefully that can happen in the future. Um, I'd love to see it. Thanks for the question, Georgette. And the second question comes from Slow Starter in St. Louis, who says, is there anything else you guys do to get ready for matches in the minutes or hours before, uh, other than doing a few pre-match hits on the court? Looking for suggestions to be going full throttle by the first shot of game one. Thanks, Slow Starter in St. Louis. So thank you for the question, and this is actually a relevant one for me because I was struggling with this lately, uh, and I, I had I, I had a long conversation with uh, Bobby Horn about this, and he was kind of giving me tips about what he does and what I could potentially be implementing, and I'm hoping to have him on the podcast hopefully sometime later on down the line, and maybe he can get a little bit more into detail about what he does or what he would recommend or what he does in training. So I've been struggling because I don't really warm up my body a whole lot. I'm 25 years old. I'm pretty f- relatively fit. I My body tends to feel, you know, decent. It's not like super sore unless I'm several rounds into a tournament. So I've been having a routine of just basically like one minute of jogging, a little bit of leg stretching. So I do like 15, 16 lunges. I do butterflies for 20 seconds. I do twist. I roll my ankles out. Um, I warm up the arms via 
the over the shoulder and over the chest um, stretches. That's all I was doing for the body, and I did a big mental warm-up. I've been getting really into the mental game, so I would do meditation and visualization to help prepare myself, which I think those parts, the mental part, preparation was great for me. However, physically, I've been struggling. So Bobby talked to me, and he's a super fit guy, but he was talking to me about how his warm-up is 45 minutes. <laughs> so he is doing, I mean, it, it, it sounded like a full workout, essentially. So I wouldn't necessarily suggest this if you're not in the physical shape to do it, you know, adjust it to your fitness level. But he basically does a fair amount of cardio, a good amount of resistance band work. So to get his hips loosened, he said was a big thing, but also warming up the arms, warming up the legs with a lot of resistance bands work. It sounded very kind of almost like some lifting involved. He would do squats. He would do, I think Romanian deadlifts, some pull-ups, some dips. So I'm not sure that that even is even right for me. But this is another perspective I was getting where you really, really have to have to treat your body right and take uh, warming up the body seriously, which I hadn't been doing a great job of. So that's going to be something I'm going to implement. I'm going to look at how I want to do that going down the line. But those are a couple perspectives. So what I've found valuable for me from the mental side of things is meditating and getting a clear mind and then visualizing to not only visualize good shots, but kind of setting an intention for how I want to be emotionally and how I want to feel throughout a match. So the the way that I want to carry myself and the way that I'm going to think when tough moments come up, I visualize that stuff. And then trying to implement some of Bobby's advice, I would just make sure that one, you have a little bit of a sweat going. And two, that every you're ready to make every movement and you're as limber and open as possible. So my my previous, I guess, theory without, I hadn't thought about it too much, but my previous way of acting was that I would just, if I didn't feel sore, I would give it kind of a minimal body workout where I'm getting semi-warm but really not not touching on every single body movement that I could be making throughout a game. So I'd say incorporating Bobby's advice, and if you know that there are certain areas or triggers that are, tend to not be ready, if you're a slow starter, um, areas that tend to not be moving as quickly as you'd like right out of the gate, you want to address those. So if that's your hips, like I think Bobby said he paid special attention to those. If that's your feet don't feel like they, uh, your feet feel like bricks coming out of the gates, Address those things um, to really get ready for a batch. Hopefully that helps. Thank you guys for the mailbag questions. And this concludes our episode seven. Thanks to Rocky Carson for coming on. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thank you.